We're awake now. Thanks, Cameron. Well, uh, happy birthday, America. Uh, right? So uh, it's two weeks of fireworks, uh, which start around midnight uh, two weeks ago in my neighborhood and carries on throughout the night, so we haven't been sleeping great. And uh, this is also, I mentioned to you guys before, um, this is my dog's least favorite holiday of the year because she's terrified right now. She's been sleeping in the bathtub, as she always does around this time of year, because she's traumatized by the sound of fireworks. So uh, pray for Nia, and uh, pray for us too, because we need to use the shower. Uh, so it's, we're, we're, we're adjusting in whatever way we can, but uh, happy birthday, America. All right, we are in the final stretch of the book of Genesis, and we're going to wrap this up right around the end of this month. Um, so we're focusing right now on the life of Joseph, uh, Joseph, his story really is a roller coaster ride, and there's a lot of ups and downs. He started out, um, he's the youngest son of Jacob, and the first son of Jacob's favorite wife, which is always a strange thing to say, uh, his favorite wife, Rachel. And so um, he was favored by his dad among all his brothers. Jason Hudson uh, preached on this a couple weeks ago where he was a dreamer. So he dreamed these dreams of uh, people coming and bowing down to him. And that made his brothers really jealous. And so they decided to sell him to a traveling band of Ishmaelites into Egypt. And uh, the brothers then, they took his technicolor dream coat. They dipped it in blood to convince their father Jacob that Joseph was dead. But then Joseph, when he ended up in Egypt, he ended up in Potiphar's house, who was an Egyptian official. And it turns out, when it comes to administrative talent, Joseph was a baller. I mean, he was really, really skilled at uh, administration. So he rose to prominence in Potiphar's house, but that got derailed when Potiphar's wife falsely accused him of sexual assault. So they threw him into prison. But once again, his admin skills got noticed by the prison officials, and so they put him in charge of the whole prison. Now, that brings us to Genesis chapter 40, and we're going to cover two chapters of Genesis today, so we've got our work cut out for us. But these chapters are important because it's a turning point in the story of Joseph. Genesis chapter 40 and 41 explain Joseph's meteoric rise from the Egyptian dungeon to being second in command over the whole nation, all in these two chapters. And underlying all of this was the sovereign hand of God leading him through this and working all of these details out in such a way that glorifies him and is for the good of his people. All right, let's dig in. Genesis chapter 40, and we're going to start off by uh, looking at the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, we're in Genesis chapter 40. I'm going to read you this whole chapter right now. Sometime after this, meaning after the Joseph was put in prison and elevated in the prison. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody, and one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. 
When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were, who were with him in custody in his master's house. Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. That's gross. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Okay, we're not going to delve into the details of this chapter. I just want to pause for a second and make a quick observation. This story demonstrates how the hand of God was with Joseph and giving him special ability, giving him a a supernatural insight to interpret the dreams of these two men. And this ability that Joseph was given to interpret dreams set up this incredible sequence of events that's about to play out. And that was, these events are going to affect the rest of Joseph's life. All right? Now, let's keep going in chapter 41, and this is where we're going to spend a little bit more time. Chapter 41, verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. I would love to see that on video. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. 
So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. All right, so far in the story of Joseph, we've seen Joseph, he's a dreamer, and he's had dreams, right? Now we've seen in chapter 40, the cupbearer and the baker, they're dreamers, and they've had dreams. Now these dreams were interpreted. The interpretation of Joseph's dreams will become clearer as the book goes on. But now we have Pharaoh, and he's having dreams. Now, the Egyptians believed something. Get this. The, the Egyptians believed that Pharaoh was divine, right? So they believed that the gods communicated directly to Pharaoh because he was their ruler. And so Pharaoh awoke in the morning, and he was very troubled by the dreams that he'd had. So Pharaoh knew that this dream was some sort of a divine revelation, but neither he nor the magicians could discern the meaning. And since none of them could figure it out, they needed a man of God to reveal to them the word of God. They needed the man, uh, some man of God who could interpret the dreams for them, just as Joseph had done for the other two. Now, let's keep going here in verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard... We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit and when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now Joseph's response here was striking. First of all, he he doesn't claim any special ability of his own, right? So Joseph is giving glory to God. This, it is not in me, that's one word in Hebrew. And it's, a, it's an emphatic word that says, it is not in me. So he's not claiming any sort of special credit or ability. He's giving glory to God. Second, he said, uh, he said this to a man who considered himself divine. He's speaking to Pharaoh. So it's like God saying, hey, uh, tell me, I need you to tell me what the dream is. You're saying that to this divine person. And he said, no, no, the real God will give you the answer. So it's, it's I mean, he's, he's not being disrespectful or rude, but he is being very direct, saying that the answer comes from, from God, the real God. So, I mean, if you get this, like Joseph is a slave, right? He just shaved and had a bath and they cleaned him up. He just got out of the pit, out of the dungeon. They bring him before Pharaoh. He's standing before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the, in the, in the uh, country, who considers himself divine. And this slave is proclaiming a theological truth, essentially declaring, my God is the true God. He is above you, and the truth that you seek is in his hands, and you are at his mercy. So that's a, that's a pretty bold move to make. 
But Pharaoh, what, what are his options? I mean, he doesn't know the interpretation. He's asked around all of his magicians. None of these guys know the interpretation. So to learn the dream's meaning, he must listen to the words of this Hebrew slave. And Joseph is making them a promise. Hey, God will give you the answer. It's not in me, but I'm the one that will tell it to you. So Pharaoh tells Joseph the detail of both of the dreams. Joseph immediately knows the answer as he has before. Now let's jump down to verse 25. We'll pick up the story in verse 25. So the verses we're skipping is just him recounting the dream. Verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Now get this. We're talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Hebrew God, the God of the Hebrew people. And he has revealed the future in a dream to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. But God has humbled Pharaoh by giving the key to unlock the meaning of the dream to this Hebrew slave. Verse 26, the seven good cows are seven years, and the seven, uh, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. So God has revealed the future of Egypt's economy right here to Pharaoh. The next 14 years... Are revealed to Pharaoh. You've got seven years of prosperity, which will be swallowed up and followed by seven years of poverty. Now that word famine, that would strike terror in the heart of anybody who would hear it in the ancient world. It's a big deal. I mean, imagine if we were to hear now, okay, hey guys, uh, we're going to have seven years of prosperity, and after that, it's going to be followed by seven more years of COVID. I mean, Think about just how you'd be like, oh no, not that, anything but that. That's kind of how it would feel if you were talking about a famine. Back in 1984, 85, before some of your all's time, uh, that's fine, I get it. But I w when I was a kid, 84 and 85, I, I remember this. There was a famine, and uh, particularly affected by this was the country of Ethiopia. And the news reports about it were horrifying. And there would be pictures on the news, and you would see these, these little kids that were starving to death. It was heartbreaking. I mean, they're just skin and bones. And the famine had wiped out their food supply. And so uh, Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie, they formed this super group called uh, USA for Africa. Anybody remember USA for Africa? Maybe three of you? <laughs> USA, Steve, I know. I was like, well, you remember the dark ages. But... Um, <laughs> But USA for Africa, they, they formed this group, and it was, there was this who's who of 80s pop artists, and they recorded this song called We Are the World. I got a picture here for you to see it. Um, is the picture there? There we go. So you can see like all of these names. I mean, there's Ray Charles in the front. Uh, you see the boss, Bruce Springsteen there. Daryl Hall is in the back on the left. Kenny Rogers in the white shirt. Uh, Lionel Richie there. Huey Lewis, Kenny Loggins. I think that's Lindsey Buckingham up there with his one ear in the afro. Below him is Daryl Hall, Bob Dylan. I mean, like, all of these folks. And that's just one part of the, of the group. I mean, just tons of people. 
and they recorded this song, We Are the World, and they raised $63 million to be for famine relief in Africa. All the proceeds went to it. I mean, this just shows you just how big of a deal it was because famine relief was wiping out this country. I mean, these people were starving and dying. And that's in the modern world with modern technology and food distribution and travel and so forth. Famine is a huge deal. There's Egyptian historical records that show that some famines were so devastating that the people resorted to cannibalism. That's how bad it was. Now, verse 32, if you thought all of this was bad, verse 32 adds insult to injury. And the doubling, here, Joseph is still speaking, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. There ain't nothing you can do to stop it, Pharaoh. As sure as the sun rises in the east, this thing is going to happen. It's on. And it's going to happen soon. God's going to bring it about real quick. Now, don't misunderstand. God isn't judging Egypt. He does that in Exodus. But God isn't judging Egypt here. This is, this is a, a prophetic revelation of future natural events that are about to happen. But it, So you can think of it more as a heads up. Like, hey, Pharaoh, newsflash. Just, just giving you a heads up. Famine's headed your way. So he's, he's kind of giving him a warning of a natural disaster. Now, you might think, like, why would God give Pharaoh, king of Egypt, a heads up? But God doesn't owe him that. Why does God go out of his way to give him this dream that has an interpretation that would lead him to know that famine was coming? Well, the answer is so that they could do something to prepare themselves for it. God isn't just saying, like, hey, disaster's coming, and I'm letting you know so you can worry about it before you die of it. <laughs> He's saying, no, I want to tell you about it so you can do something to prepare yourself for it so it will you can protect yourself. So this is a, a, a message of you know, what we would consider a natural event. I mean, God is sovereign over it. We'll get into that. But it, it's, a, it's a heads up about a thing that's going to happen. And he's mercifully telling them, you've got seven years. The clock is ticking. What are you going to do to get ready for it? Now, God concealed the dream's true meaning, the interpretation, and gave it to this Hebrew slave to demonstrate his superiority over Egypt and over Egypt's gods. And now I want to show you something. Verse 32 is fascinating to me. I mean, I really camped out on this in my study this week. I was just like, I thought about it so much. Because there, in our theology, we'd be like, yeah, we believe God is sovereign over everything. And I want to talk about that in a few minutes. But it seems like there is a particular kind of sovereignty that is more sovereign than sovereign. I don't know how to, how to describe it. But it seems like the famine is fixed by God by the doubling of the dreams, which sort of sets this aside as uniquely uh, uh, certain to happen. There's no changing it. So one conclusion that I think we can draw from this is that humans are free to respond to God was telling them this thing is fixed so that they could respond freely to the things that God has told them is going to happen. So God tells them, here's what he's going to do, but he does not tell them what they need to do. He leaves it up to them. 
It gives them, uh, he gives them the freedom to exercise dominion. Like we've talked about this, Genesis 1, exercise dominion to rule, subdue the earth. So they need to subdue and to exercise dominion over the effects of this famine. God is, they have agency. I mean, our belief in the sovereignty of God does not deny the fact that we have real agency as moral agents. We can do things. We make real choices and we're responsible for them. So God's indicating what he's going to do so that they can respond to it. And so the question then is, what should they do? Pharaoh believes Joseph's word. I mean, he's freaking out. He, he believes that this is going to happen and he needs to prepare for the disaster. But how should he prepare? What should he do? Well, Joseph continues. Let's go through these verses a little bit slower. Verse 33, Joseph is continuing to speak. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. I wonder if Joseph has anybody in mind. You know, He's like, hey, if you know anybody that can interpret dreams, they're wise, they're discerning. If you, if you know anybody, you know, like I could put in a resume. So, but like, who do we know who's wise and discerning like this? Well, verse 34, he continues, let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. So Joseph not only said, hey, find somebody to fix it. He says, find somebody to fix it and... Make sure that whoever you find to fix this thing executes this plan in this particular way. So here's the plan. He says, what we need to do is tighten our belts. Every year, we need to save 20% of all of our, of all of our uh, provisions during these lands of plenty. Set aside 20% of it and set it aside for seven years so that when the famine hits, Egypt can survive the famine by opening up our emergency reserves that we've got saved up. It's a pretty smart plan. Verse 37... This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this? And whom is the Spirit of God? Joseph turns to the camera and gives a wink. <laughs> Pharaoh needs a man with crazy admin skills who also happens to be in contact with the Spirit of the one true God. Well, what do you know? He's standing right here. All right, verse uh, 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and over all my people, shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I've set you over the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garnet, garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath-Paneah and gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. I don't think there's any relation to Potiphar, but uh, it's a similar sounding name. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. So in an instant, 
Joseph is freed from the pit, and he's exalted to the highest place as ruler over Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And since Pharaoh believed the word of God spoken through Joseph and took appropriate action in response to it, Pharaoh now has a front row seat to behold the power of God and the mercy of God because Egypt will be saved by the mercy of Joseph's God. Now, the rest of chapter 41 is an epilogue. I want to read just the verses of it, make a couple of observations, and then we've got four application points we'll get into after that. So, verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old. Imagine being vice president at 30. He was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, as was expected. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Seven fat, plump cows, right? Seven years of prosperity and abundance. They came to pass as the dream and interpretation indicated. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Those are Hebrew names. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Two quick observations here before we get into application. Pharaoh's trust in Joseph and in Joseph's God proved reliable and everything went down exactly as Joseph had predicted. Second, throughout all of Joseph's trials, he remained faithful to God. Now, we'll see this more clearly as the story progresses in weeks to come, but we see it indicated here in the fact that he gave his two sons Hebrew names. Four application points. The first one, God is sovereign over the future. The sovereignty of God is the underlying theme of the whole chapter. Laura and I, we... Whenever we watch the news, we watch WLWT for the news, and they make predictions of the future every day uh, of the weather. And of course, Randy Rico is our favorite. Uh, she's in the morning, you know, uh, before before work. Um, we watch her so much. She's like a family friend. We feel like we know her, you know. Like, oh, it's Randy, and Laura will watch you. Like, hey, I think she's got a new dress today. <laughs> it's like we know her pretty well. So uh, never met her, but uh, we like Randy Rico. But as good as she is with all of her Doppler radar and all that. 
we know that she's, like, her job is to be just a little bit better at guessing than we are. <laughs> and they pay her lots of money to do that and to look cute on TV. So it's like, but just be good at guessing. That's, that's what meteorologists do. You know, I've got a weather app on my iPhone, and uh, I'll be like standing outside in the rain looking at my phone, and it says sunny, high of 80, you know? It's like, we, we don't have any control. I mean, the best we can do is guess. We look around, and we're like, okay, we see the clouds, and sometimes on a sunny day, out of nowhere, it'll just start raining. Like, we can't predict the weather. God controls what weather in Mount Auburn will be like. And he knows, like 14 years in advance, he knows July the 4th, 2035, God knows what the weather will be like that day. Because he is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over the weather patterns. He's sovereign over all. I have scriptures to share this with you, but this is not going to be a long, I don't want this sermon to go on all day, so I cut that one out, but it's in the Bible. (laughs) God controls the weather. We see God's sovereign hand guiding events to the outcome that he has predetermined. He knows that the wind and the weather patterns will lead to this great famine. So Pharaoh knew because of this what the weather forecast was going to be for the next 14 years. God is sovereign over the future. Number two, God is sovereign over nations. God is sovereign over nations. Pharaoh now knows that the destiny of Egypt and even the welfare of Egypt is in the hands of Jacob's God. And he will be protected from hardship and harm because of Jacob's God, right? This is a major theme of the Old Testament. God demonstrates his superiority over other nations and over their gods. And this story demonstrates that all nations and the gods that rule over all nations are ultimately subject to God. One Bible commentary I read this week, I love the way he says it. He says, God raises up kings and sets them down. He controls the destinies of empires in accord with his plans for his people. And God determined that his servant would be the means of delivering Egypt. Psalm 22, 28 says this, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Do you remember God's covenant with Abraham? This is a part of the covenant that we haven't really talked about much because it doesn't, it's not fully developed in the book of Genesis the way it is later. Like later, the book of Joshua and the book of First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, like the, the rule over the nations becomes a bigger theme after the book of Genesis. But if we remember God's covenant with Abraham, it was not merely to save Abraham and give him a whole bunch of kids. But it was that eventually they, kings would come from them, and they would be the conduit of blessing to all the world, Right? God's covenant with Abraham included a promise to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham and his family. Genesis 22, 17 says, I will surely bless you. This is God speaking to Abraham. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. 
God cares about the nations, right? God cares about Saudi Arabia. He cares about Iran, about China, about Indonesia, about Antarctica, even though there's nobody there. God cares about all the lands and all the nations and all the peoples of the earth. And his ultimate design is to rule all the nations. And he's going to demonstrate his superiority over the nations sometimes through our weak, frail, fumbling stupidity. (laughs) And that's how God works. God is sovereign. So get this, Joseph's story hints at what God would ultimately do to demonstrate his superiority over other nations. It's hinted at in Genesis. It's more fully developed elsewhere in the Bible. But God displayed both his power and mercy through the weakness of a Hebrew slave who was faithful and suffering unjustly. Joseph was cast down, rejected by his own brothers. He went down into the pit and suffered a sort of death. And after being falsely accused, he stood tall before the king of the land, proclaiming the word of God, which brought salvation to the nation. So this theme of blessing to all nations promised in Genesis, developed further in the Old Testament, is fully and finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true and perfect son of Abraham, who possesses the gate of his enemies and blesses all nations with the hope of his grace. And that hope of his grace, it then expands outward as Jesus commands his disciples at the end of the book of Matthew 28, make disciples of all nations. He sends his people out, and as the gospel is proclaimed from his people in every nation, those nations are blessed just as God promised to Abraham he would do it, and just as God demonstrates through Joseph that he would do it in Egypt, God does it through us, that the ultimate Release the ultimate salvation from the ultimate fear is accomplished in Christ, and through faith in Him, we are saved. God's heart is for all nations, and He is sovereign over all the nations. Number three, God's sovereign rule is for His glory and for our good. Simultaneously, God's sovereign rule is for His glory and our good. Now, this was on display here in chapter 41. In his sovereign plan, God sent Joseph on ahead to prepare the way to save his people. Now, we'll get to see how God saved his own covenant people in the later chapters. But Pharaoh and the whole nation of Egypt benefited from God's covenant faithfulness to save his people. I mean, think about this. At this time, God's people constituted about 66 souls. It's mentioned later on in the, in the narrative, I think 48 or chapter 49, something like that. 66 people come with Jacob down into Egypt. So God is saving this entire nation of Egypt in order to maintain his covenant, love, and faithfulness to preserve his covenant people. If it weren't for his covenant with Abraham and to preserve his people, we don't know whether or not God would have saved Egypt from this famine. But God did it out of covenant loyalty to his own people, because he's faithful to them. This is a good thing to remember on Independence Day, that God is sovereign. He's sovereign over our country and over every other nation in the world. He is sovereign over all nations, and always in such a way that it's for his glory and for our good. And, you know, I'm always reminded of this after every election, regardless of who wins. This is not a political statement. After every election, I'm comforted by the fact that whoever wins, 
whether it was the person I voted for or somebody else. I'm always comforted that by this one simple fact, and that, that is God is sovereign over our nation, and he is sovereign for his glory and for our good. God is sovereign over mayors, governors, congressmen and women, senators and presidents. And we can trust his sovereign hand in whatever happens. And last year, we saw a lot of people putting their hope in something other than the sovereign hand of God. And they put their hope in political parties and outcomes of elections. Now, I'm not saying detach and disengage politically. I'm not advocating for that. But I'm saying that whatever the outcome of whatever election is, that is not ultimately where our hope is. Our hope is in God. So if, if the, the person that you voted for or that you wanted to win loses, I haven't picked a winner in two decades probably. <laughs> so my guy always loses. But whoever, whatever, whatever happens, whatever the outcome of the election is, you can trust that God sovereignly put that person in power. And he did so for his glory and for your good, even though in the short term immediate, it may not seem that way. So God is sovereign. We trust that. And as we'll discuss in a moment, we also take free action, as we saw Joseph and Pharaoh did. But our, our hope is that God alone knows everything, and he alone is wise, and he alone controls the future, and that includes our politics. So in Genesis 40 and 41, God is pulling back the curtain so that in subsequent generations, people like us, some 4,000 years later, can read it and see that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in this story, we get to, we're privileged to see a little bit more of the machinery of his sovereignty and how he's working it out. Because most of the time, we don't get to see what he's up to. And that's where faith comes in. We believe God is in control here. The nations are in his hand. He controls their destinies in ways we can't see, but in ways we can't always know are for our good. I don't know why Kim Jong-un is in control of North Korea. The guy is a wicked, evil man. Why would God let him be there? I don't know. What I do know is that God is sovereign, and he's in power because God allowed it to be so, and that it's for God's glory and, for, and the good of his people. It's not some random thing that just so happens, and God's like, what are we going to do? Kim Jong-un is terrible. No, it's like God has a, has a purpose in that. So get this. If Joseph's brothers had not sold him into slavery, he would not have ended up in Potiphar's house. If Potiphar's wife had not falsely accused him unjustly, he would not have ended up in the royal prison. And if the cupbearer and, uh, bear, cup and the baker had not offended Pharaoh, they would have not met Joseph in the prison. And if they had not dreamed dreams on those particular days, and if they had not told Joseph the dreams they'd had, his special ability to interpret dreams would have gone undiscovered. Every event in Joseph's life are in God's hands and every weird turn of events and the mistreatment and the abuse and the injustice. At many points, Joseph's life looked like a dumpster fire, yet at every turn, God was working out his plan. And finally, in chapter 41, we see, ah, here's what God was doing. Now, that doesn't mean that because your life sucks right now that you're going to get to be vice president someday. So don't, don't get me wrong here. <laughs> All I'm saying is there's things going on that we can't see, and what we have to do is have faith. God's doing something, and whatever he's doing is for his glory and our good. Laura and I used to do, we uh, did mission work in Argentina a couple times, and uh, we noticed when we were there, they'd have these little ponies that had carts attached to them, 
And these pony, people would ride these little ponies. Downtown La Plata, Argentina. I mean, it's kind of strange. But imagine just seeing people in ponies with these little carts around downtown Cincinnati. It was strange. But they would stop at, at dumpsters and trash cans or whatever, and people would rummage through the trash, and they'd pick out little pieces of garbage and put it in these carts that these ponies carried. And so as they, as they would go along, they would fill up these carts full of garbage. And they were all over the place. And so we asked the locals, like, what's the... What's up with these garbage ponies, you know, <laughs> roaming the streets? And people told us that um, what they would do is they would take other people's garbage and then they would fashion them into various crafts. And they'd make jewelry. I, I, bought, a, I bought a journal, like a notebook, made out of uh, handmade paper, a handmade leather cover that was, uh, you know, hand-sewn and bound together. It was, it, was, it was a work of art. It was this beautiful thing, like with handmade paper. I mean, just you feel like you're holding something so, so precious, like they, they poured their heart and soul into this. And so on Saturdays, they'd all converge in this area. They called it a hippie fair. I don't know why they named it that, but people called, at least that's what people called it to us. And it was this open-air market, and they would sell this stuff that we made. We went down there almost every Saturday. And just like God took the garbage and the trash of Joseph's life and reshaped it sovereignly into something beautiful. God can and will do the same thing for us in our lives because he is in control. He is sovereign. And whatever happens in your life, you can take it to the bank. God allowed it to happen. And it may take a lot of faith in your circumstance to believe that God allowed those things to happen, one, for his glory, and two, for your good. And he's taking that garbage and he will turn it into something beautiful. Believe it. Number four, God's sovereignty should not make us passive. God's sovereignty should make us active. Let me tell you what I mean. In case you didn't know this, you're in a reformed church right now. Welcome. We're glad you're here. There are QR code on the screen, fill out a card. Uh, we're glad you're here. Um, and also, just for the sake of saying it, uh, you're here because before the foundation of the world, God sovereignly ordained that you would be here this morning. So uh, we, uh, we believe that too. God's sovereign. We believe that. So hello. Uh, thank you for being here. Praise God. Now, all that being said, there's a dark side to reform Christianity. And here's what it is. Believing in God's sovereignty can lead some people to become fatalists, meaning like, they believe God is sovereign. And so there's almost like a spiritual, uh, since it's something is more spiritual if it happens without any human agency at all. It's like, oh, this thing just happened and it was so random, I didn't know where it came from. And so it must be from God. You ever heard that? We think that way a lot of times. And I'm not discounting that God will do that, but I'm saying just because it happens randomly doesn't mean it's from God. Because God works through human agency. Some Christians think God is sovereign, so it doesn't matter what we do. It's going to happen anyway. So if God's sovereign over the nation, why bother vote? You know, whoever God wants to be in there is going to be in there. Or if God's sovereign over the events, why bother pray? Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. You know, I know a guy who says, you know, I really want to be a Christian, but I just don't think I'm elect. So uh, nothing I can do, am I right? <laughs> no, uh, the technical word for that is stupid. You know? <laughs> That is really foolish. You don't th we, God doesn't lead us to think that our actions are neither free nor meaningful. No, we, we have agency. 
We make real choices. So God's sovereignty is not an excuse for passivity or it's not an excuse for disobeying him. Look at those verses again. Verse 32, Joseph said, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. God's sovereign, right? God is, is, is in control. So in Hebrew, that means God is extra, super, double certain about this one. Look at the very next verse, verse 33. Joseph said, now therefore, let Pharaoh select. Pharaoh, you've got agency. Pharaoh, make a choice. You choose Pharaoh, a wise and discerning man, and set him over the land. God's sovereignty accounts for our agency. So we can, we can affirm both. It's, uh, uh, J.I. Packer calls it an antimony, like this thing that appears, it's hard to resolve. And so we could just say, hey, we don't know how that works. But we know God's sovereign, and we still have free agents. Uh, free agency, it sounds like baseball. We still have agency as free human beings. So this chapter teaches that the famine was a fixed certainty, but the human response was left to free agency of human beings. Let Pharaoh select somebody. Of course, God knew Pharaoh would select Joseph. And so God was working it out. But as far as Pharaoh was concerned, he made a real choice. So God revealed his sovereign will so that humans could freely exercise dominion within those parameters as a result. So remember this. We are created in the image of God. Now, if you remember the message from back then, one of the things that the image of God means is that we are called to exercise dominion. The fact that in the modern world, famine is not nearly as bad as it was then is because People have made planes, trains, and automobiles, and food distribution centers, and cooling systems, because human beings have exercised dominion, and freely invented and created wonderful things that preserve life. Subdue the earth. You have personal and moral agency, so take action. It's a walk by faith, but we have faith that God is sovereign, so we can walk by faith and not sit by faith, right? Take action. In the late 1700s, uh, William Carey, you may know him, uh, he missionary to India, famous missionary. But this dude was thoroughly reformed. This dude was a uh, 12-point Calvinist. I mean, he was very much a Calvinist. Reformed Christian, so he belonged to, they call it Particular Baptist Church. We've got cooler names for churches now. You know, like Edge of Reality Church or whatever. But anyway, he was part of a Particular Baptist Church. So he wanted to be a missionary to India. Now, he said this once, uh, here's a quote. He said, multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. William Carey wrote that. And so he told the story of a young minister who was speaking to a, uh, a group of mission or ministry leaders at a church. And he was talking about the value of overseas ministries and we need to send missionaries and one of the older ministers interrupted him, and he said, young man, here's a quote, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. <laughs> Evidently, he forgot to read Matthew 28, which is take the gospel into all nations. But. So William Carey, he was famous for uh, one, of these, one of the sermons that he preached called Expect Great Things from God and Attempt Great Things for God. And I love the title of that sermon because it captures uh, the, the spirit of what we've been talking about here. 
It's like when it comes to God, he is sovereign, so we can expect great things from God because God is sovereign and he is going to accomplish his purpose. And at the same time, we can also attempt great things for God. Whenever William Carey had died, he had lived his life that way. He had uh, sailed to India in 1792. It took him seven years to baptize his first convert, but he ended up living there for a total of 35 years. He, he had lost at least one child. Uh, his wife went crazy. Literally, she went crazy. And by the time he died, he translated the, the Bible into the six major languages in India, including parts of 209 other languages and dialects. 35 years. All while being completely Calvinistic. But he was not fatalistic. He saw that the sovereign hand of God compelled action. It didn't prevent it. He trusted God was sovereign, and his trust in God's sovereignty did not make him passive, but gave him the strength and the courage to take action. Let's pray. Father, what a delight it is to, to talk about your sovereignty and to um, just to delve a bit into just these mind-blowing uh, thoughts, Lord, that we can't figure out of how these things fit together, but we know that they do. Thank you, God, that, we, that you, you're in control. You're in control who's in charge of every nation. You're in control of weather patterns and which way the wind blows, the temperature. You're in control of all the little details of our day, Lord. And Lord, I suppose we can thank you for the fact that you don't reveal these things to us so that we can operate in a world freely, exercising dominion and subduing the earth. So God, I pray that you will erupt in our hearts a, a vision for the supreme glory of God, the beauty of your power and majesty and your mercy. And also, God, that you will compel us to take steps of faith and take action. Lord, I pray that you will show each of us here today what, what is one thing that we can do stepping out in faith, trusting your sovereignty, a step of obedience. What would you have us do? And whatever it is, Lord, we thank you that we know that all things work for the good of your people, for those who are called according to your purpose, for your glory and for our good. And we thank you, Jesus, for the cross of Christ, where the sovereign hand of God is most powerfully on display. So thank you that we are renewed in the gospel. And we ask you, Lord, to fellowship with us now by your spirit as we come to the table. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.